Okay, we are um, in the middle of our uh, series. We've got uh, two down, two questions down and uh, two questions to go. Where we ask people to engage uh, with the community, uh, people, friends, uh, connections, and um, ask them, what is, what's a question that if you could ask God about life or this world that we live in, what would it be? And uh, we got a range of responses back, and the, the third most popular response was uh, questions related to and around death. Questions related to and around death, um, like what happens after we die? And I think that's uh, it's a really big question. We've dealt with a couple of big questions the last couple of weeks, but there's probably none bigger than that. I think in everybody, at some point in time, begins to roll this sort of question around their mind, particularly if they've been to a funeral or something like that, where they really are truly staring death in the face, death of somebody else. And this question comes up. Death. Well, what happens to us after we die? In many respects, we don't really want to dwell on it or think about it too much. It's like it's, it's too morbid a question for us to sort of, you know, sort of think on or spend time on. I'd rather think about life and how much I can get done in this life than think of death. We sort of struggle to deal with it. And I think particularly so in Western society. Uh, it's just something we don't really put into our minds to uh, think about. It's like, don't speak about death, you'll ruin my day if you start talking about death. And Western culture, I think, really does uh, put death right out of our minds. Yet it's the common thing that will happen to every single one of us. And you can compare that to third world countries. That's a contrast there. Uh, they are daily dealing with death in many of those third world countries. Uh, it is not uncommon at all for small children to casually walk past dead bodies lying in the streets of villages or cities, particularly in those um, war-torn, civil war type uh, places, it is a common thing that people see. They just walk past and uh, they see dead bodies uh, lying in the streets. In some countries, still today, in some countries there are public executions where the whole community is coming out together to see a public execution and small children again will witness people being hung. So in these third world countries, death is something that is just, it's common. It happens. It's just part of everyday life and they sort of sort of deal with it in that way. It is the common thing to all of mankind. Those of you who are aware of Benjamin Franklin, from 300 years ago he made this uh, famous quote, in this world nothing can, be, nothing can said to be certain except death and taxes. Well I think sometimes some people do manage to avoid taxes but nobody will avoid death. It is the common thing to all mankind. It is certain uh, that death will come our way. And there's generally two big fears when it comes to thinking about death. And I think it's sometimes with these big fears, these are the reasons that stop us thinking about it or even talking about it. Firstly, this large fear that we have when it comes to deal with the idea of death is that it will be really painful. Somehow we get this thought in our mind that it will be, be really painful death. And I'm not sure if that comes from Hollywood and the movies that some of us have watched and the way it's sort of portrayed and you see these agonising looks on the faces of people. But I think from that, there seems to be this massive fear that, hang on, when you die, there's going to be this truckload of pain that just makes it unbearable. Um, that's not really the case. I mean, some people die very painless deaths. Many people die very painless deaths. But that is one fear when it comes to thinking about death. Secondly, we are fearful of death because we just don't know what happens after we die. It's such a final thing. It's such a, you know, a dramatic thing where the curtain falls and that's it. But what happens after that? And that's the very reason why we've got this question today, because people are actually thinking about 
what happens after I die? I, actually, I don't know. It becomes this fear of the unknown. And this fear of the unknown actually can begin to paralyse us from even thinking or talking about death. It's just such a, uh, a foreign thing to us that we just don't even want to bring our minds around it. So we get this fear here of the unknown. And that's exactly where we want to go today as we think about this really important and this big question here about death and what happens to us after we die. And to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to um, look at a few different worldviews or different perspectives on how people think about death and how people might perceive what takes place after death or what is actually death all about. Four views that we'll uh, think about, three of them we'll briefly look at, and then the, the fourth one, which is a, a God-centred or a biblical worldview, we'll spend more time thinking about that. Reincarnation is one worldview. Annihilation is another worldview. And good place, bad place after we die is another worldview. And then we'll look at this uh, more concentrated upon a God-centred biblical worldview as we think about what happens after we die. First one, then, is reincarnation. Uh, there are some Eastern religions like Buddhism that believe in this idea of reincarnation. This perspective or belief when we come to that is that I live many different lives. Sometimes you could have hundreds or maybe thousands of different lives in this belief or this thought of reincarnation. And depending on the life you've lived, you will either come back, as reincarnate means you sort of come back to life again. Depending on the life we live, you'll either come back in a higher form of life or a lower form of life, depending on how you did in the previous life. If we try and live a good life, doing good things to others, in the belief of reincarnation, you will move up the scale into a higher life form, perhaps a more pure existence. It could be that human being becomes a better human being, or a more pure human being, in a more pure form, if you live a good life in this idea of reincarnation. If I live a bad or evil life, I will actually drop down to a lower life or lower existence. It possibly could be a willful murderer may come back as a snake or a lizard in this idea of reincarnation and the many and various lives you might go through. Or if someone's filled with uh, gossip and bitterness, they may come back as a rat or something like that. There are all sorts of structures where you go up and down uh, in this idea of reincarnation. And the whole goal of this life form here in death, ultimately, is to reach this place called Nirvana. Nirvana. And that is a place where we are free, eventually, from the cycle of death. And this is a place where you have no suffering, you have no desire, and you actually have no sense of self. Um, I'm not sure how that's going to be if you have no sense of self, but at, at this point, in the, according to the belief of uh, reincarnation, you are one with the universe around about us. That's their sort of quicker um, uh, um, snapshot of uh, reincarnation from, from a Buddhism belief. But this is hopeless. This is really hopeless. This belief doesn't deal with the core of our problem in life. And what we are consigned to is a life of continually fighting ourselves against this sort of evil within us trying to fight against it so we can somehow climb to a higher life each time and eventually try and reach this place called nirvana, as they would say. And death actually becomes a great fear for us because we can't battle ourselves good enough to get to that next level. It becomes a hopeless situation to even approach life thinking like that. Another viewpoint is annihilation. 
you might be saying, what is annihilation? But some people think this is a real thing that happens after death that's annihilation. The word annihilation simply means total destruction or obliteration. In other words, you cease to exist at the end of this life. There is nothing conscious about you whatsoever. You totally cease to exist. We live for so... And the idea here is, is we live for whatever length of time in this world and then when we die, it's nothing else. It's finished. It's all done. The curtain has fallen and life is just over totally and finally. You cease to exist in this idea of annihilation. It's the same thing that the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They believe in total annihilation for those who are not uh, in the chosen ones of whatever their sect or their cult believes in. They believe in annihilation. You just cease to exist. Kerry Packer, you might be aware of him. He's a media mogul. He died about 10 years ago. And uh, he had a near-death experience, a heart attack, I think one year or so before he died. And he, he came back and he told this to his uh, son, James Packer. And he said, I've been to the other side. Let me tell you, son, there's nothing there. Kerry Packer believed in annihilation. He believed, like there's nothing there. It's all over. It's all finished. That's how he thought about life. That's how many people think about life and this idea of nothing. It's annihilation. I cease to exist. If we look at that and we're honest about it, we need to answer this question when it comes to this idea of annihilation, of a total obliteration. Where's the sense of justice if somebody rapes and murders all their life and never gets caught? If they're just annihilated, something seems really, really wrong about that. How can they live a life like this and just get away with everything, so to speak, and there's never any justice brought to bear upon their lives? Or dictators in some of these other countries who just rule by pillage and death and by um, just uh, deception and lying and fraud and just squashing uh, the vast majority of the people and they can live their whole life protected in that country and they can die and then they're annihilated? There just seems something that's really, really wrong about that in the sense of it doesn't sit right with us. Where's the sense of justice in that, that someone can do that and then life just finishes and they're annihilated? doesn't sit right with us as we think about that. Or with annihilation, this whole life would seem meaningless and pointless. If I'm just going to be annihilated, cease to exist at the end, why go through all the struggle and all the striving and all the challenges of life if there's just nothing at the end, what's the point? And hence, you might get some people in, in that way as we go through the euthanasia debate, thinking, well, there's nothing at the end, I might as well just end all of it now. Again, that gives us, as it were, a meaningless or pointless life if we think that that's all there is, it's annihilation. It leaves us still with many big questions unanswered if we thought that was all the end was going to be. Another viewpoint here is good place, bad place. It's a very popular worldview that says, yes, there is life after death, and good people go to a good place, and bad people go to a bad place. Very, very popular view. And this does begin to echo, I think, the idea that every human being does think about that there is something beyond this world we live in. There's something, what we call the afterlife. They're not sure what it is, but they do have this echo in their heart that says there must be something beyond this. And getting it back to actually uh, James Packer, uh, Kerry Packer, uh, when he died, his son in his father's eulogy said this, I can't help but think that there must be something after this life. 
which just echoes the very thought that I think every human being, truly if they're honest with themselves, say, hey, there is something beyond all this. Good people will go to heaven in their mind and bad people will go to hell. Many people will also think like that. There's one really good question that we need to ask ourselves when we think about that. Who decides who is good and who is bad? In this good place for good people and bad place for bad people, who makes the decision that who are the good people? And do they go to the good place? And who are the bad people? And they go to the bad place. What measurement or what rule is in place to decide that, to make that decision? What generally happens is that everybody makes up their own set of rules. Everybody becomes their own judge and jury. They decide who a good person is. And they actually say, no, I have been a good person and I will go to heaven. I will go to the good place. And even a person that you might think is bad, you might ask them and say, no, no, I'm a good person too. You'll have a whole set of different sets of criteria or ways of trying to work out who's the good person, who's the bad person. It's a really challenging question. Who decides? And this is where it becomes a big problem. But people think like this. I remember um, a few years ago, David Hooks, the uh, coach of the Victorian uh, Sheffield Shield team, was king hit from behind and uh, got killed in the king hit and at a press conference a few days later. And the captain of the team, David Berry, uh, said, um, what do you think Hooks would be doing right now? <coughs> he was his coach. Oh, I know what Hooks would be doing right now. He'll be up there, be sinking a few BBs, looking down at us, just enjoying life. His idea was, you live a good life, that's where you go to. That was how we thought, you know, good people go to the good place, bad people go to the bad place. And for them, it's only really a bad murderer or child killer who should go to the bad place, who should go to hell. So who actually determines this? It's a serious question when we think about this good place, bad place. It falls down very quickly because we have so many different sets of criteria or rules that make that decision. But at least with that viewpoint, we are heading in the direction of uh, what the Bible begins to talk about is, hang on, this life is not all there is. There is something beyond this. And this is now where we come to a Christian worldview or a God-centred worldview which holds God at the very centre of everything we see and we know in this world. All of life, all of life, including death, revolves around this sovereign divine being called God. All of life revolves around him. And we best know God from the Bible. We best know God from the Bible. In this timeless book that has spoken the truth about this world and the God who created it, we discover all we need to know about God. It comes from what we call the Bible, the pages of Scripture. The Bible is a self-authenticating book that once discovered transforms our lives, totally transforms us. It makes us unbelievably new beings who see this world with a new set of eyes, and a new mind, a new heart. So if we want to know about God, we must, we must turn to the Bible to know who this God is, who's created this world, and he will give us exactly what takes place after we die and why we die. And that is important for us to know, firstly, why we die in trying to answer this question, what happens to us after we die. Because dying seems such a foreign thing to humanity. It is a foreign thing to us. It is something that is completely unnatural. It's the last thing in anybody's right mind when they're living life is to die. Nobody wants to die when they're actually living life and in their right mind. It's a very foreign and unnatural thing to us. 
Steve Jobs, or Jobs, depending how you pronounce his name, the, one of the founders of Apple, said this very same thing. He says, no one wants to die. And I'm sure here, if everybody in their right mind has said, if you want, do you want to die? No hands would go up. Nobody wants to die. Death is unnatural and death is telling us something is wrong. Something is really wrong that we die when we don't want to die. So we need to find out why we, uh, why we die to help us understand what happens after we die. We go right back to the start of the Bible again because that really helps us as we look into the very beginnings of life. And when God created Adam and Eve, he made them to lovingly serve and obey him. A loving creator gave them this wonderful place called the Garden of Eden to live, to enjoy, and to enjoy him who is the creator of that garden. And a test of their obedience before this loving God was the restriction of not eating from one tree. He's this fantastic garden, uh, beautiful to the eye, beautiful to eat in every way. And God says, there's one tree there, don't eat of that tree. Leave that tree alone. And we find out what happens there in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 16 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge, of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. You shall surely die the day that you go to that tree and eat of it. Both Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and they ate from that tree that they shouldn't have eaten from, and the consequences then of disobeying God was death. As that scripture tells us clearly, says, the day you eat of that tree, you will die. But if we follow the Bible on, they don't die physically. If you just keep reading on beyond that, you see that Adam and Eve, they're still alive and they're kicking. They're still living, breathing human beings. So what death is God talking about here? And he says, the day that you eat of that, you shall surely die. Because something did die within them. If you follow the story on, the next meeting that Adam and Eve have with God after the eaten of that tree that they were told not to eat from, you find then a very shameful and a very fearful Adam and Eve. The moment they hear God walking through the garden, they actually run and hide themselves from God. So fear has gripped their hearts. And, and when they finally, God discovers them, God knows exactly where they are, and God calls them actually graciously and lovingly to himself and then asked them, Why did, what, where were you? Why were you hiding? And said, we were ashamed. So they were both shameful and fearful after they had disobeyed God and eaten from that tree. So what we can say there is that their spiritual connection with God, which was perfect up until they ate from that tree, was now broken. This, this connection of innocence and purity before God has now been broken. What they have felt is like a spiritual death. Spiritually, they have died after eating of that tree. They have broken that connection with God. And not only did they die spiritually at that point in time, ultimately they also did die physically. Um, for Adam, was about 800 years later, so life was pretty long back then. But that's, uh, that's the case. They died spiritually. So when Adam and Eve sinned before God, they earned this penalty of death that God had decreed. And the Bible confirms this with many, many other scriptures. Let's just look at a couple of them that talks here about death that comes from sin. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin uh, brings in death. Romans 6.23, just a little bit further on. 
For the wages or the payment of sin is death. There's a direct connection here. When we sin, we die. Everybody now, because of sin, dies. Because of sin, we are absolutely consigned to death. We are born spiritually dead. Ten out of ten people will die. There are no exceptions. Nobody can escape death. Even for those people who are paying hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to have themselves frozen in in cryogenics in America, hoping that a cure will be affected maybe 500 years down the track and they can be brought back deep thought or whatever it is, microwave for 25 minutes on low heat or something, and then I'll come back. Death. It is there. 10 out of 10 people die. So we die. Then what? Here comes the question. We die because we've sinned, but what happens after we die? Well, what we already see here about God in the garden, right back in the beginning with Adam and Eve, God is a God who makes judgments. God is a God who actually makes judgments. God has judged that the disobedience, the sin of Adam and Eve to be worthy of death. When you disobey me, God, you lose your life. God's making a judgment and making something very clear about himself at this point in time. God is our judge. So when we die, the Bible makes it very clear now that we are headed for the judgment of God. Something that people don't often want to talk about. They don't like to see God as our judge. They don't want to see God as a judging God or a justice God, a God of justice. But the Bible makes no apologies about it, and particularly the New Testament writers, they come out and say it very, very clearly. They had a grasp of this totally. Three scriptures we'll read out to help us see that, that it's uh, without any question whatsoever. Acts 17, 30-31 says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul makes it very clear as he speaks in Athens, a day is coming when he will judge the world in righteousness. Judgment day. Romans 14, 9-12. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Judgment. Hebrews 9.27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. It's a good scripture there for those who believe in reincarnation. We don't die a thousand deaths. It's a point for men to die once. And then comes the judgment. It's a pretty clear picture here that the Bible paints. It's an uncomfortable picture here that the Bible paints as well. God is a God of justice. God is a judging God. Abraham also said to, uh, as it were, the angel of the Lord when um, he was thinking about um, uh, telling Abraham that Sodom and Gomorrah was going to be uh, rained upon by sulphur and fire. And he says, shall not the judge of all the world do right? God is our judge. 
And as we are made in the image of God, as human beings, we actually cry out for justice, don't we? When we see something that's done horribly wrong and someone's committed a crime, we are naturally looking for justice to come. It's a natural part of us. We, can't, we don't want to let things that are wrong just go by without being dealt to. God says he will carry out this perfect justice at the final judgment of all humanity. His justice will be carried out. For those who may have been an evil dictator and done what they've liked despite whatever laws in the land or set up their laws to just to cater for their crazy lifestyle of just getting whatever they want through selfishness, they will be dealt with if they've missed every court of the law here in this earth. They will be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ. It's an uncomfortable picture. And we get a real picture of this, though, even from the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, actually gives us a, a, a sneak preview of this judgment. Revelations chapter 20, 11 to 15. Follow along as I read through this. Take it in. Think about it. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the death who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now you may not have ever heard that before in your life. You may not have ever read that before in your life. You may think that sounds really strange. That sounds like a scene out of the movie from The Hobbit or something like that. It sounds very dramatic and sort of you know, only Hollywood-like to some extent. It's not a movie. It's reality. When we read this passage of Scripture, it is meant to inspire awe in us. When we read this, it is meant to inspire a godly fear within us, a reverence and a respect. When we read this passage, it is designed to take our breath away for a moment. It is designed to actually stop us in our tracks and think about this reality of judgment after death. Let me set the scene for you here. We get the idea here that all of humanity over all of history are gathered together in one location. Now you might think, how on the earth is that going to happen? God can do anything. All of history is gathered together in one location. From the lowliest poor person from India, that dropped out, is it? From the lowliest poor person in India to the richest person that's ever lived, here they are all gathered together, standing side by side before this judgment throne. And I can assure you, in this place there is no VIP sitting and there are no corporate boxes in this place that they may be accustomed to in this world. And they are standing, as it were, in a courtroom. And in this courtroom sits the Lord of the universe. And he sits on a great white throne. 
he sits there to preside as judge. In the writing of John here, he wants to communicate, as it were, a sense of awe, a sense of respect for the presence of this judge. So what does he say? He says, the sky and the earth have fled away. There's this idea here of awe-filled experience, that things are actually somewhat carrying away from this holy and pure judge, this judge who will not overlook anything. Now, I was in a courtroom about three or four months ago, not as a criminal, but as a witness. And I can assure you, for those who have been in a courtroom, it's not a party place. It's not a place where you tell jokes. You sit there very quietly, very reverently, and you wait for the judge to actually give his decrees and his orders. It's only a snapshot. It's only a tiny snapshot of this courtroom here that we're thinking about this judgment that comes after death. I can see where John's saying this feels like it's terrifying. It would be terrifying. John goes on and tells us. He says there's books. There's books in this courtroom and the books are opened up. And in these books, all of our lives are recorded and kept in. Everything you or I have said or done or thought is in these books. Every word spoken, every deed, every action that I've carried out, and every thought that has crossed my mind is recorded in those books. Nothing is missing. It's all there. And John says that they are here now to be judged according to everything that's recorded in these books. And that's John's language of books. Today, perhaps we could write this like this, your whole life from the moment you're born to you breathe your last is now recorded in high definition 4K video. And it's now going to be put up on the big screen for all to see. Everything you've ever done or said or thought. Nothing missing whatsoever. Everybody will see the good, the bad, the ugly. Everybody will see every thought that has passed through your mind or my mind. Now, this good judge who carries out this perfect justice is there to see it as well. It'll be played before him, but not for the first time. This good judge knows everything from the beginning to the end. He knows everything that we have done. It will be played there, in a sense, before him and before everybody else, because what everybody will see, this is a completely uh, true and just judgment people make as our lives are played out before everybody and before him. Everybody will say at the end of their life, I got what I deserve. The judge was right. Now, I don't know about you at this moment, but I'm not so keen for everybody to see my life on 4K high-definition video. Not at all. Because I'm going to go there and think, well, Todd Hall, 13-year-old with his schoolmates watching pornography. That's not good. Todd Hall, telling his father a bold-faced lie. Todd Hall, a few years later in life, deceiving a man about the condition of a vehicle for sale. It's all there. Nothing escapes. Every thought is there. Very uncomfortable. It's meant to be. This is the final judgment that awaits us after we die. It's appointed once for man to die, 
and then comes the judgment. It goes on to tell them that everybody whose name isn't found in the other book, the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's a fearful piece of uh, scripture. It really, really is. It's meant to strike awe in us. Now, you might sit here and say, what can I do about this impending judgment? It's not going to go away. What can I do? Because I know I'm guilty. I don't have to think too far back in my life at all, and I don't want to see any of that come up on the video screen. Is there no way out? Am I just sitting here on death row and waiting for this judgment to come? Is that, is that it? Well, there's really, really good news. This God who is a judge and a very good judge, the best judge that could ever be, a perfect judge, this same God is also the Lord of the universe who delights in mercy and he delights in grace. He's a grace-filled God. He's a mercifully filled God. And he's a God who willingly gives second chances. He is the God of second chances. This one and only God, this perfect judge, has entered into human history to make a way possible for us to be declared innocent at this judgment, to have all of our lives' sins wiped away in one foul swoop, one glorious swoop, probably a better way to say that. Let's read about this God who's entered into human history to do that for us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, 15 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy death destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For he in that passage is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He entered into human history to destroy the clutches of death. He partook, it says there, of flesh and blood to completely identify with us. And God in his infinite mercy sent his son to do this, to take our place, and to pay sin's penalty, to die the death that we all deserve to die. Jesus, the sinless and spotless, as the Bible says, Lamb of God, became the sacrifice to take all of that sin away. Every last one, all the ones you've even forgotten about, Jesus takes that away by his death upon that cross. And he destroys the power of death. He destroys the fear of death. As it were, we are held captive to Satan's power through sin to death. And the ultimate sting of that sin is death. And the death that we talk about here, this, that the Satan has power over us, is this final judgment where we are cast away into eternal suffering and punishment, thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus steps in and takes that death in our place. Jesus steps in and releases us from that judgment. Jesus steps in and he releases us from this death by his death on the cross. Our record may stand here now and accuse us. Satan may bring all of these sins back to us right now, everything we've done in the past, and try and weigh us down with guilt. And even if we stood in that courtroom and everything was played again there, in this grand courtroom and all was up on the screen, and my life is finished and I've seen all the bad, Jesus will stand up and raise his voice. And he will declare, those sins are paid for. Those sins are forgiven. I spilled my blood on the cross. They are washed away. You are innocent. 
That's what Jesus will do. It's a gift that he gives that no one deserves. And it's received by trusting in this death that he has died for us. And it's received by turning away from sin and becoming a follower of Christ. Here's what I can safely say to every follower of Jesus Christ when it comes to death. Yes, you and I will die. We will die. We will not escape physical death. It is a very vivid reminder something is horribly wrong in this world. We will die. But for a follower of Jesus who's trusting his death for their sins, death is a transition. It is a transition. It is a transition from this broken life of struggling and pain and suffering, and it's a transition from that life into a heaven-bound life of joy and wonder and beauty in the glory of God. Death is a transition for a follower of Jesus Christ. We need not have any fear of death for those who are trusting in Christ, for those who are not trusting in Christ, for those who are not living as God, uh, with God as their Saviour, as their Lord. I cannot give you that assurance. I cannot give you that assurance. So my friends, are you prepared for the judgment of God? And if you are, how are you prepared? Are you willing to go into that courtroom to hopelessly try and defend yourself? Or are you trusting in God's Son to declare your crimes against God to be totally forgiven and exonerated? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a gracious God. Thank you that you are a God who does delight in mercy and does delight in grace. Thank you also that you are a God who is a God of justice, a God who judges, and that is a good thing. God, today we read through what you've inspired John the Apostle to write. And that's an awe-inspiring picture that we can only do the smallest amount to try and think about in our minds. Lord, every one of us deserves to have guilty stamped across our record. But amazingly and just lovingly and sovereignly, you send your son into this world to take our guilty record upon himself so that we stand in that courtroom and we are declared innocent. God, I pray that your spirit would come and unveil our hearts now to see that. Maybe for the first time ever. God, I pray that you would cause the scales to fall away from our eyes and perhaps the the cloak of darkness over our minds that can't comprehend that. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would bring that understanding for the first time to people's hearts. And I pray for those who grasp that, Lord, we would be refreshed again in the good news of Jesus Christ. That yes, we will die, yes, judgment will come, but he's taken that judgment for us in our place. Let that produce within us awe and wonder and worship and praise for this glorious Saviour who has stepped in to take what we deserve. May it inspire us, Lord, to share the good news of the grace of God through the face of Jesus Christ to this world around about us. God, today for those who are perhaps fearing death in some way, 
For those who are believers, Lord, followers of Jesus, let them see that, God, this is a transition. This is a transition. Sure, it's uncomfortable. It's meant to be uncomfortable, Lord, but it's a transition. So I pray that you'll give them faith to know that you will give them grace in that time when they face that biggest challenge of life. That we'll see it as a transition for what it really is. Because, Jesus, you said you are the resurrection and the life. That we will never die. In a sense, we never will die as far as our soul is concerned. God, thank you for that mercy. Thank you for that grace today. Let it be growing and alive in our hearts, I pray. Father, we, uh, we ask that. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions? If you have any questions, I would love to catch up with you later or we'd like to talk some more about that. We'd love to follow that through. If you uh, could come up and lead us in one song, that would be great. Thanks.